scared, uneasy, unsure, confused, apprehensive. These were the common words used according to a recent and formal Regent University survey. These young men and women were asked a question regarding their future. Scared, uneasy, unsure. And if you were to read this article, like I read this article, I think it comes across quite clearly that one of the greatest fears of this generation, or perhaps probably any generation, is the fear of living a meaningless life. Surely this is the dread of the 20th century, 21st century, excuse me, man or woman. Meaning and purpose has become in our culture the center of one's quest. Well above money and fame, I would say for our culture. For money and fame to people, I believe, is just affirmation that they have found their meaning. And for some here today, either Christian or not, our quest in faith is, will the Bible, will the gospel, will God give me what I so deeply, deeply long for? Um, the author of this book, Truth Decay, the, the, the writer sort of talks and I think believes, kind of gives a contemporary mood. He says this. He says, the self has become saturated, sated with possibilities, options, and preferences, yet without an inner gyroscope for direction, correction, and inspiration. When all values are constructed, no objective values are possible. No guiding ideal is available and no taboos intrude. There are only experiments, amusements, and diversions. The postmodern self is dynamic, but also fragmented and ultimately empty of objective meaning. And then I believe the author finishes by saying something very mysterious, and ultimately, what is our goal to discover and understand today? He says, the self was made for better things. We are made for better things. See, we are in a time of 2018 where we aim for better things. We are in a season where we fight and pursue better things, right? January 1st, better food choices, better career choices, better relationship choices. Uh, Some are even right now considering better church choices. This is what we do with our Januaries. Better things is our deepest hope and our heaviest prayer for this year. I don't know about you, but I said many times, please, God, do not let this year be like last year. Please, right? So God, what is the better thing that we are made for? Where can we find it? I believe here everybody would want that. Nobody's denying better things. We would all say, yeah, gimme, load it up. Well, the answer lies not hidden somewhere in the Bible, not some obscure forgotten book of the Bible. It happens right in the beginning. We already said it, Genesis chapter one. Now allow me to read this. You can feel free to follow along on the screen. Starting in verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here we go. Let us make man in our image. I want to repeat it one more time. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Friends, collective church, this better thing is buried like treasure in, like, under the dirt of controversy. What we just read is extremely controversial. This is very debated, and it's very upsetting. But this controversy lives beyond science and the creation debate. 
This is controversial for whole other reasons. You see, if you've never read Genesis chapter 1, we must view this account differently than the rest of the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, you must start with Genesis chapter 1 different from every other chapter that follows it. This poem, this song, is less about being the first of many narratives. It's less about that, but it's more about a lens in which to view the rest of biblical scriptures. Genesis chapter 1. You know how if you go to the movie theater and you're going to go see a 3D movie, and they got the guy there and he's handing you the glasses, remember? That's what this is. These verses is the handing over of interpretive glasses for us as the viewers. Okay, so knowing that, let's talk about it. It's this symmetry, it's this juxtaposition of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 25, which it's a preamble, drum roll, building, leading to our verses for today. Genesis chapter 1 through 1 through 25, in my opinion, where my brain went, it's basically like one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever birthed from rock legends, Led Zeppelin. Everybody know Stairway to Heaven? Yes. <laughs> this is, you're so excited right now. <laughs> Is anybody, is everybody familiarly somewhat with Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin? Holy smokes, you guys. Come on. <laughs> Can I get an amen? This song is extremely beautiful, but it's a slow, slow burn, and it feels like forever. The song takes forever and has this great prose, and then the song erupts. Actually, we should, Chucky, play that song, will you? Oh, we didn't set it. It's okay. No, but nobody, that's fine, fine. We don't have time to get into it this week, the slow burn. We don't have time to get into Genesis chapter 1 through 25, the slow burn. That is next week. But very quickly, I just want to paint this because this is so rad. Repeated 10 times in seven verses alone, verses 1 through 25, you'll see the words after their kind. When it's talking about creation, it says according to their kind, multiple on top of multiple times. But not here. Not in verses 26 and 27, 28. In Genesis 1, 26, the personal pronoun changes. It goes from he said, he said, he said, to what? Let us. Let us. It was all of a sudden a conversation with the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image. Us, our Theologian John Calvin aptly notes that unlike any of the other days of creation, God pauses. I love that. God pauses here. Calvin writes, God chose to give this tribute to the excellency of man, that he would, in a manner, a manner enter into consultation concerning his creation. It's because of this and only this that we see the words very good, very good pertaining to man. And woman. And the rest of creation, good. Make sense? So all of a sudden, Led Ze- all of Led Zeppelin songs are good. Stairway to Heaven, very good. Okay? <laughs> Genesis 126 says, my fa- one of my all time favorite theologians, Francis Safer, he says, It is as though God has put an exclamation point, exclamation points here to indicate that there is something special about the creation of man. So all of that to make my point that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Mankind is the pinnacle, clearly. Like, this is all you need for an example. I am the pinnacle, my body. But let's go here further. Let's go further. Here's the level of controversy I was referring to. This is so epic. As the reader, 
We can read Genesis up to our verse. We can read Genesis up to verse 25 as a Christian and go, neato speedo, that's great. Up to this point as a non-Christian unbeliever, you can read up to this point and go, don't believe it, but good on those who choose to believe it, whatever. But, 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 when the reader, either believer or not, gets to verse 126, everything changes either Christian or not. Because now what's happening is it's talking about you. And it's talking about me. This verse is extremely uh, personal. So set aside this huge cosmic idea of God creating mankind and apply that just for a moment very, very personally. And let's chew on the, the idea that God is the author of my, of my Human essence, my purpose, my agenda, my aim, my meaning, my identity, my worth, my dignity, my value. Friends, we have just dug up the buried treasure. This is the something better. God doesn't just have a word for for human anthropology. He is its very source. Now, this is the offensive part for any unbeliever here who is present today. Because what we're getting at here is that the image of God constitutes a definition of man and woman, of you and of me. Francis Schaeffer, again, again, this, it's offensive, but it's true. He says, for the, mo, for, the, for the postmodern man, this phrase, image of God, is as important as anything in Scripture because men can no longer answer that crucial question. Men can no longer answer it. That question being, who Ham, I. Again, this is the something better. We no longer, like bloodhounds, need to stiff out the mystery of what is the meaning of life, or what is the meaning for me, or what is my purpose, or how do I get a life that is more meaningful? The purpose of man cannot be grasped apart from the purpose of God. Period. We no longer have to say, scared, uneasy, unsure, apprehensive when we are talking about what we're doing with our lives. It seems finding meaning and identity in our culture today, if you think about it, it's like one's end game. I'm doing all this to just eventually end up there. That is culture's peak. That is culture's pinnacle. That is culture's glory. If I can just end up there, I've arrived. But with a Christian worldview, the image of God is a starting point. Meaning and identity is a starting point for the rest of the world. It's, let me end up there. But for us Christians who are here, it is a starting point, not an endgame. We were made for better things. We were instilled with meaning and identity from the very beginning. The Bible would say to all those who carry the weight of trying to find this meaning, that we need, that you need, that I need to start with a robust theology and awakening to what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, up to this point, pastor, Bible teacher, and get to this point, oh, that sounds great. But it's very, you know, ideology. Excuse me, ideology. It's all peach berry pie. Because in honesty, what does this actually mean? What does it mean? Well, the doctrine of the image of God is very uh, complex. For one, it's not that clear of its exact meaning within Genesis. Separating man from cows and octopi and cactus makes total sense. But 
History and critical studies over many centuries of theology have wanted us to believe that it's, it's a physical resemblance. Man looks like God. Again, my body looking like God after the holidays. That's doubtful. That's very, very doubtful. To read all of Scripture and to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we see that God is spirit, and therefore our anatomy cannot correspond with his divine nature. Another far too uh, narrow defining of this image is when it just speaks of when people say it just has to do with our nature. Oh, the image of God just has to do with your nature. So if it's not physical resemblance, then it's nature. Meaning, God creates, well, I create. It means God speaks, well, I speak. Or it means God is rational, I am rational. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, but that is like speaking of an oak tree just by describing an acorn. We cannot just place the image of God as another generic human nature marker. To bear this image speaks more about identity and worth and meaning more than it does our function. I'm not talking about our function today. It's not a quality possessed by humans. It's a condition. So then, how do we truly understand this? How do we apply it? How do we know what the image of God really is? Well, if you have moleskins or not, or write them on your clothes or whatever you want to do, this is what I would say. The label I would give it is this. Divine representation. This is the image of God. It's for us to have divine representation. Divine reflection. The way I would describe it, if that's how I label it, the way I would describe it is this. Like a mirror. And to be more exact, an angled mirror. From all of my studies, the illustration of an angled mirror seems to be the most comprehensive, honest, and dynamic of understandings with the image of God. When one has a mirror in front of them, it what? It images their reflection. We all know how mirrors work. (laughs) Welcome to church. We all know how it works. But when one has an angled mirror, it becomes multidirectional. You know those bubble traffic type mirrors at corners? I can not only see myself, but I can see what's coming. I can see what's going. It's multi-directional. So when mankind, you and I, worship, when we rejoice, when we sing praises, when we seek to honor God, when we work and do his work, then we must realize that we are doing so as divine representatives of this world to and for our creator. That's one side of the reflection. The other direction is this. To bear the image of God means mankind is an angled mirror in this world. So follow me here. So that God can reflect his love and his care for this world through you and I. You tracking? It's multidirectional. We represent the world to God and God to the world. I believe there's so much, so much to this, especially if you read the New Testament and you see the words royal priesthood. So, when we are looking after creation and bringing God's healing, restorative justice, love, and gospel to who are around us, to what is around us, we are employing that dominion that it says that we have. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Have dominion. Now, we can just read these words very quickly and go, Cool, dominion. But to have read these words in biblical time, have dominion, subdue, rule, reign, is a very, very revolutionary thought. 
Why? Because to represent or to cultivate or to reign was reserved for who? Authorities, kings, and leaders. But now in Genesis 1, it's distinctive in extending that very notion to all. Revolutionary. To all now bear that mark. All. No matter their race, stature, age, education level, all. No matter if they sign up or are on The Bachelor or not, all. Hard to believe, but all. We just watched The Bachelor and I was just blown away by the people who were there. But they too, made in the image of God. It's a great show. Let's take this further. Those very people who would have found this so revolutionary actually use the verbiage image of God quite a lot. I don't know how many of us go around speaking about the image of God to them all the time. All the time. Let's, uh, I want everybody to see this. Nearly in the, everyone in like the Near East lived under the rule of a king or authority. And these very rulers would proclaim themselves to all the people that we are God's image. These kings would tell the people, we are God's image as kings and who have dominion. So what would they do? Well, they'd walk around erecting these massive stone statues in their place. See, I am the image of God. I am the king. I am the ruler. And they put statues everywhere. Think about last year's, actually, yeah, think about last year's, like, purge of the Confederate statues all over our nation. Think about that. Cities and states ripping down these statues that weren't just representing those very people. They were actually representing what? What they stood for, their goals, their achievements, their attitudes. This is the power of image. And in the East, all surrounding nations had had these, these icons. Every nation would have had an icon, these massive stone statues, except one nation. Anybody know what nation that would have been? Israel. God's chosen people. Israel had heavy instructions not to. To not create. Don't you dare create statues. Don't you dare create icons. Don't you dare create idols. Why? Well, because the living, living, living God wanted to put his image into this world. So he didn't carve lifeless idols. Instead, he made living people to represent him. To stand for what God stands for. God's goals, God's achievements, and so on. It's like an athlete wearing a brand. I represent and I am represented by. I think that's how sports works. I don't really know. I think you can call me out later if that's not how it works. <laughs> the problem, of course, in mankind's history in reflecting and in representing is it as we begin to reflect, we begin to shatter, we begin to represent other things. I'll explain. There was a um, like a short story by Pulitzer Prize winner Stephen Milhauser, who wrote in a book, I believe it's called Voice, Voices at Night. I don't know if anybody's read it. But he tells a short story of a man who bought meerschein, some meerschein from a traveling salesman. And as the man applied the shine to his mirror, what happened was he began to fall in love with the reflection of his wife more so than the actual person. So he began to look more at the reflection than his own wife, and it caused massive, massive fractures to the relationship. It's a very disturbing story. But friends, I would say very clearly, this is what has happened to us. Our life as angled mirrors, our life as image bearers, we begin to fall for these reflections and shadows other than God himself, causing massive fractures to the relationship. 
And ultimately, the angled mirror was shattered. John Calvin, again, he would say it a little bit more intense than I would, but I'm going to let him say it. He goes, The image of God has been destroyed by sin, and though it's not totally annihilated by the fall, it is what? Frightfully deformed. Even a broken mirror still reflects. So the image of God is not lost, it is shattered. Meaning, due to humanity's sin, we now see through a dim, mere, foggy, blurry. This is what I believe Paul was talking about in the New Testament when he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when glorification comes, but then we will see face to face. Now, I thought it would be good in this moment to talk about an Old Testament story so vile and so strong in imagery that for centuries it has served as a cautionary tale to any who truly seek and to divinely represent the image of God. If that is you in this room and you are here and desire to take this seriously and apply this to your life, please listen carefully to what we are about to go over. See, deep within the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 32 holds a horrifying, horrifying episode about image and about icons. The famous leader Moses has just escorted hundreds of thousands of Israelites out of slavery and oppression, and he's brought them to the wilderness, and they are on a journey, and they are now in wait. And Moses, the leader, decides to go up the mountain to commune with God and basically say, cool, what's next? We did this. What's up? To be with God. But while he is up there, the newly rescued image bearers get a whopper of an idea. They cannot fathom, listen ever so closely, they cannot fathom how God could possibly care for them in hard times. It doesn't make a lick of sense to them, especially without their fearless leader, Moses. Again, think about it. Didn't we start off tonight talking about, is this God of the Bible, is the gospel, can it give me what I deeply long for? That same question is what the Israelites are dealing with right now. Right then, they fear and they know all too well they're from their former days, the pain of hunger. So again, what do these image bearer do? What do they do? Get this. This is so insane. They craft a molten image, not of an icon, not of an idol, essentially, but of, not even of Moses or of Pharaoh, but of what? A cow. Not even trying to figure out what God could possibly look like. They go, guys, I got it. Let's make a statue of a cow. Really, Phil? Trust me, it's going to (laughs) work. Now, no doubt this is from the agrarian idols of Egypt, and this is fresh in their minds. But this reminds me of a a J.K. Chesterton quote. It's such a great quote. He says, when you abandon belief in the creator, RJ, this is for you, bro. Not that you abandon belief, but you like J.K. Anyway, (laughs) excuse me, G.K. When you abandon belief in the creator, people do not begin to believe in nothing They began to believe in anything. Let's make a cow. (laughs) They molded this, not because, again, they love cows, but because why? They love themselves. They make this image because they love themselves. This is self-worship. All idolatry, all sin, all icon erecting, when it's eroded to its very center, is self-worship. The very thing that they crave the most, food, meat, they begin to worship and trust in order to hopefully get something from it. I'm going to worship this in order to get fed. That is self-affection. I'm going to worship this so it can feed me. That is self-love. That is self-worship. 
This being something that's a very real temptation for all of us in this room, including me. And every movement, every word of this story drips with violation of Genesis 1.26. Violates our meaning and our identity and our purpose. And when God sees what's going on, he tells Moses, get your booty down there. And I just picture, I don't know if anybody have those kind of dads, like when they caught you doing something nuts, like far off in the yard or something, they start taking their belt off. You're going to get it. Like I picture like Moses is like freaking out, running down the mountain. Now though, if we thought this story was kind of weird so far, it just gets so intense right now. This is what Moses does. This is his fatherly, you're going to spank you. This is what Moses does. He melts the icon. He grinds it to a powder and he spreads it in the water. And then he looks up at all the people and he says, drink it. Even Joshua, who was up on the mountain, must have been like, Moses, (laughs) that's really weird. (laughs) That's, that's, That's too far, Moses. But Moses says, drink it. See, here's the thing. Symbolically, the calf was to provide food for them. And now Moses requires that idol, that icon, that image of the cow to make good on its promise. The Israelites physically take in, they gulp, they swallow this image. And from this point on, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you spent much time reading the Bible, but from this point on, every act of rebellion, every act of violation against the image of God is now referred to, for the Israelites, in calf-like attributes. From this moment on, God would say, you stiff neck people, you stubborn hearts, you hard hearts, your lowered ears. So my point is this. We, with our ability to rule, subdue, and create like the creator, we then, like the Israelites, more often than not, create imposters, we create something foreign, we create something alien. This being, every time we do that within our heart, within our life, is the undoing of the image of God. It's a reversal of the purpose creation that we have been giving. See, God has not come through for me. What else can I create so I can get what I want? I'm very guilty of this. God, you have not shown up, so I guess I'm going to have to do this over here. God, you have not made do, so I'm going to erect a statue here. And I will trust this more than I will trust you. See, discipleship groups here, this is what we look for in our brothers and sisters. What images that they are possibly reflecting and representing other than God himself. To ask, to help by exposing, is there anything in your life that you are reflecting other than God? Asking questions like, are you so um, ensnared by the industry that you've become Hollywood cutthroat? Are you so trapped up in a relationship or desire for a mate that you compromise way too much? Et cetera, et cetera. See, if those are our tendencies, we are making molten cows in our life. We are abandoning our creation. But I would encourage us, in those discipleship groups, in those moments, in these times when we are preaching to ourselves, when we realize this is happening, what I would encourage, because maybe what your tendency is, if it's a lot like mine, is to go, great, I don't want to do that. What do I got to do? I hear that solution. Great. Give me. Give me the recipe. Telling others and telling ourselves, work. Get nuts. Be useful to God. Read the Bible longer. You know, purge social media. Drink green tea. You know, whatever it is. Make it happen. This better thing that we have been talking about all morning, the hard truth for, for us is that it is not attainable in and of ourselves. 
Because if it was, we would describe our image of God like this. Scared, uneasy, unsure, confused, and apprehensive. For broken images to know how to live as image bearers, we need to not look at other broken images or our own shattered mirror. We need to look at the perfect image of God. Jesus. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's beautiful. If you think about this, Jesus is both the visible image of the new creation and of the creator. Simultaneously. You see, where Adam failed in his image-bearing, Jesus did not. Where we fail in our image-bearing, Jesus does not. Jesus Christ, I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, he's given this this very interesting title where he's called the second Adam or the last Adam or the new Adam, depending on the translation. What that means is the second Adam, Adam is the name for, for humanity. Adam is a term for mankind. So when they say Jesus is the second or Jesus is the new or Jesus is the last, what they're saying is Jesus is a second humanity, a new humanity, a new restored image. So Jesus as the perfect image and mirror not only represents what we couldn't, but get this, now represents us perfectly to the Father. Angled mirror. And because of that, we now conform to his image. Look at Romans 8. should be on the screen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So I'm going to end with this. What we find... This will be very practical. What we find at the centerpiece for what it means to be a perfect image bearer when we look at Jesus is this. What we find is a radical love for God and a love for other image bearers. I believe it was um, Bruner, Swiss theologian. He says, um, if it is true that Christ perfectly images God, then the image of God, what? Must be love. Again, a strong indication while we are spending next week on race and the following week on the unborn. A fervent love for God and a fervent love for one another. Friends, that is a New Year's resolution. Not losing 30 pounds. Although I I get it, I need to. But that is a New Year's resolution. Collective church, if I can speak to you, we are sitting in a new venue at the top of a new year with a lot of new plans for us as a community and for us as individuals. Man, it is absolute waste of time, garbage, if we do not do it with love. I don't give two rats booties about this place if we are not loving people, if we are not going out of our way. And I'm not not just talking about the lovable. Oh, yeah, I got to hang out with, uh, you know, somebody around here that I... (laughs) I like everybody I mean we'll we'll move on my hope and prayer is your pastor would be this year to love greatly man to love greatly a love like Christ which reaches out to the unlovable image bearers in our community, in our city, in our circles. A love like Christ which serves other image bearers. A love like Christ which asks, what can I give? Rather, what can I receive? You know, I heard somebody say about Collective Church recently, and I'm probably overstepping my boundaries, but I'm going to say it, is that 
Collective church cares far too much about hands and heart and not enough about the head. And I heard that and I said, amen. Amen. Absolutely. We care so much about the application of people loving one another greatly and about serving the other image bearers. And we care about that a lot. There's only so much you can do with head knowledge. I can stand up here forever and preach till the cows come home. But if we do not apply this in loving people, then again, it's a giant waste of time. Just think about this collective church, if you could for a moment. If we took the image of God so seriously that it revolutionized our day-to-day, meaning such radical love for image bearers that we were disgusted, disgusted by the sight of pornography. Such radical love for image bearers that we were appalled, appalled by words of gossip. Broken by inappropriate racial jokes or slurs or microaggressions. We took it so seriously that we interacted with the local homeless as royal representatives. And even for us ourselves, that we were so secure. Okay, this is what the image of God brings. It brings satisfaction and it brings security. But we are so satisfied, we are so secured with our makeup, with who we are. This is my biggest thorn in my side is I am the most insecure man you will ever meet. For us, finding meaning in something that cannot be taken away. Friends, could you imagine? Collective church, could you imagine? Again, we have a lot of plans for this year, but I want us majorly, I want our biggest plan, our biggest aim to love greatly. Amen? Let's pray.